Fantastic. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Okay, I'm an Englishman, but I'm an Australian. My parents are Welsh. Uh, my wife is from Chile in South America. My children were born in England. We are messed up in our house. And uh, it's true. My name is Glenn. It's spelled G-L-Y-N. Uh, it's the only name in the world that has no vowels in it whatsoever. Uh, it's because my family are Welsh, and uh, in Wales they speak a completely different language with no vowels. And, um, but it's great to be with This is uh, my, um, really my, my first time proper in California and have been here just for two days or so. I've been schooling Pastor Jared in how to play golf over the last day or so. And uh, we've had a good time doing that. And uh, we've been praying during that time. But it is an honor to be here. Jared, thanks so much for the honor of being able to be in your amazing church, Higher Vision Church. What a great church, eh? What a great name. I love it. It's such a great name, Higher Vision Church. And we all know, don't we, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above or beyond anything we can ask, think, or imagine. That's the kind of God that we worship. That's the kind of God that we serve. And, you know, one of the things I think we should always have a focus on is just the size of our God, not the magnitude of our problems, but the size of our God. In the last nine years of church, we've seen 12 terminal cancers in our church healed and uh, documented evidence of people who were dying and no, now no longer dying. Um, in several occasions, we've had people were, who've had physical scars on their body who've been uh, self-harming just in worship. God has taken the scars off their bodies, miraculously healed them. And uh, God is doing really good things. And you know, the same God who's here in Valencia, California, is the same God who's doing things in Manchester, England, and is moving around the world. And uh, thank you for your prayers. Last month, we had a bit of a difficult time with the Ariana uh, concert with the bombing that you would have seen. That happened in a building right next to ours, about 100 yards away from our church building. But it's amazing to see how just God has used the darkness to really reveal the light. And what we're seeing God do is really, really amazing in our city. So thank you for your prayers. In fact, right now we have church. Our evening service is happening. We have four services on a Sunday in Manchester. And we are having record numbers today in Manchester. That's cool. I should come to you more often. If church means church at home is going to grow. And that is so good. Well, Father, we want to thank you for our time together, God. Thank you that you are a good God. Lord, I pray for my throat right now that you'd strengthen it and heal it in Jesus' name. But God, I pray for every person watching online for every person sitting in seats right now. We know we're changed in your presence. We pray, God, that as we turn to the book of books and we come before you, the King of Kings, God, would you come and bring change in all of our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Come on, one more time. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well, the Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. I'm going to read from the King James Version, the proper authorized version of the Bible. And it says this, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. There is, of course, another translation that you would maybe be more familiar with, where it says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Look at that mathematical equation. No vision means perish. But if you have vision, you have life. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Where there is no vision, the people perish. I'm a second generation pastor, a second generation Pentecostal preacher. My dad was a theologian and a pastor, a preacher. He had 10,000 books in his theological library. And my, my long-lasting memory of my dad is wherever we were as a family, he would always sit there with a theological textbook. 
He had a photographic memory. He was awesome when I was in Bible school because I could go to my father and say, Dad, I'm doing a research paper on such and such a subject. And he would say, listen, just go to the fourth bookshelf along, third shelf down, the fourth book in, the green book, page 222-224, second paragraph down, the answer's there. He was a freak of nature. And I thank God for the years that I had with my dad. And now he's with Jesus, which makes heaven a little bit closer for me. I'm looking forward to seeing him again one day. My dad, when I was 20, I went to Bible college in Australia. And when I applied to the theological seminary, the theological seminary wrote to my father. They accepted my application and there was a letter there for my dad. And it said this, Dear Pastor Barrett, we would like for you to come and be the theology professor in the Bible seminary. So we ended up in college together. My father was my theological professor for three years of studying, which is great in so many ways, but there was one thing that would happen every theology lecture with my father in a classroom of about 80 students or so at the time, my dad would start every theology class by reminding me of something that happened when I was 16. (laughs) Do you want to know what happened when I was 16? Come on. Does anybody want to know what happened to me when I was 16? All right. When I was 16, I was living in Manchester. My family had relocated from Australia to the suburbs of Manchester where my dad was pastoring. He said to me this, he said, Glenn, you're going to have to be the youth pastor. I said, Dad, there's no young people in the church. He goes, precisely, you're the only one wearing jeans, you've got the job. (laughs) Most people, you know, they, they have an epiphany. They see Jesus, Mother Mary, Angel Gabriel, whoever, and they get called into ministry. Not me, man. I went to, into, into the pastor game because there was literally no one else to do the job. So I was 15. I was my dad's youth pastor. When I was 16, I started to fall in love. It's the first love of my life. Well, actually, the second love. The first love I spoke about in the last service. This is a different message. I'm 16. I'm in school. And this girl looks at me and I look at her and she was attractive and I was quite handsome at the time. And and I'm I'm an Australian kid living in England. And around the same time, a movie had come out at the theatres called Crocodile Dundee. Anyone remember that? And so it was really popular. And this girl thought, wow, this is cool. My own Crocodile Dundee. And I thought, man, I'm going to go. I'm going to ask her out on a date. First date I had ever been on in my life. Now, my mum and dad had read me the right act. I knew what I should do and what I shouldn't do. Listen, VBS, what a great thing that is. I, I went through VBS all through my school years. I remember once one of my teachers saying to me in in VBS, you know, how would you all feel if Jesus came back and found you up to mischief doing the naughty things that you do? And I remember once in VBS putting my hand up and saying, listen, miss, i got to let you know, it's not Jesus I'm scared of, it's my mum. (laughs) So my mum told me the things that I should do and the things that I shouldn't do on a date. I plucked up the courage. I asked this girl, we'll call her Victoria. I said, Victoria, would you like to go out on a date with me? She said, I would love to, Crocodile Dundee. I said, thanks so much. So I got on the bus, public transport. I paid 12 British pence. I went to her house. I walked down the street. She lived on a steep, steep kind of street like this. I walked down the road. I walked across the pedestrian crossing. Now in England, a lot of the houses are attached. They're called terraced houses. So I got to the other side of the street. I walked about five paces or so to the gate that led to the pathway up to the front door of her house. I knocked on the door. 
She answered. I said, you look beautiful. She said, thank you so much. We walked back across the road, up the hill to the bus stop. We got on the bus. I paid two lots of 12 pence because I paid for her too. Come on, fellas. And we went to a, 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 a Scottish restaurant, I think it is. It sounds it with the name. And I bought her a three-course meal. We went to McDonald's where, where we had a starters, we had a main, and we had some ice cream for dessert. And then, and then we went to the theatre to watch, guess what? Crocodile Dundee. I'm sitting in there. We're sitting towards the back. And at some point, I kind of pluck up the courage to kind of wrap my arm around the girl. The Bible says this, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no ability to see what is about to happen, you're going to end up in trouble. So I kind of, kind of put my arm around her, you know, and that was it. That was it. Movie finishes. We walk back to the bus stop. I pay two whole lots of 12 pence each. We go to the bus stop at the top of her hill. I'm walking down the street with her. Now the Bible says where there is no vision, where there is no ability to see, you end up in trouble. Now I didn't know this. I was only 16. I hold her hand. We're, we're walking down the street. We're walking down the street. I don't know how much of the story to tell. I'm trying to gauge by the crowd. Uh, walking down the street, we got to the pedestrian crossing. I push the button. Little green man comes on. Do you have the green man? We walked across the zebra crossing, the pedestrian crossing, and to, to the gate where there is her house. We, we walked up the pathway. Now the Bible says where there is no ability to see, you, you know the passage, you end up in trouble where there's no vision. As we walked across that pedestrian crossing, we call it a zebra crossing, there was a car that was waiting at the lights letting us through. Where there's no ability to see, there's no vision, people perish. We get to the gate, we walk up to the front doors and, and I'm, I'm at the front door and she's at the front door and we're talking and then there comes that awkward moment where I can tell, I really don't know you well enough to tell this story, I can tell that the girl wants to kiss the boy. And I knew that the boy wanted to kiss the girl. This is an awkward moment. Should I stay? Should I go? If I stay, there will be trouble. If I go, there will be double. I don't know what's going on. But there's this moment. Now, I had practiced this moment many times on the mirror in my bathroom, just being honest, okay? I knew. I, I, I knew what this should look like. And, and there came this moment of awkwardness where she leaned forward, I leaned forward. She kissed me, I kissed her. And, and that was it. And I felt like, man, I can fly home. It was about 10 o'clock at night. I remember walking across the, the pedestrian crossing, walking up the hill, paying 12 British pence, about 20 cents, getting on the bus, going home. Now it's about 10.30 at night. I walk into the house. My dad, the theologian, the pastor, he's reading a newspaper and watching the late night news. Uh, I, I, I walk in. Uh, I say to my dad, Dad, would you like a cup of tea? He said, I would love a cup of tea. Thank you so much. Uh, I thought, now that i am kissed a girl, I too am a man. I shall drink a cup of tea. So I went into the, the kitchen, I made some cups of tea, I brought it out, I gave my dad his tea, I had my tea, I sat in the chair and, and dad looked at me, he said, what were you doing tonight? I said, nothing. He said, where were you? I said, nowhere. He said, who were you with? He said, no one. I said, no one. That kind of like this, you know, it's a little white lies to my dad. The Bible says where there's no vision, where there's no ability to see, you end up in trouble. My dad sipped his cup of tea and he said this, he goes, interesting. I said, what is, dad? He says, well, you know, every Friday night I like to go on a prayer drive. I said, yeah. 
He said, well, tonight at about 10 to 10, 5 to 10, I was driving down that steep hill in that suburb of Manchester called Duckingfield. Do you know Duckingfield? And I went, yeah. He said, I stopped at a pedestrian crossing and a young couple walked across in front of me. And I went, yeah. And my dad looked at me and I looked at him. He smiled and he went, My father sprung my first kiss with a girl. Where there is no vision. The reason I say that is because in Bible school all these years later, at the start of every theology class, my dad would look through the crowd, he would find me in the crowd, and he would start every lecture by looking at me and going... Where there is no vision, the Bible says, you end up in a whole lot of trouble. Vision, higher vision, is such an important thing, not just for the collective of church, but for every individual, for your marriage, for your family, for your business, for your financial investments. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no ability to see, you end up in trouble. See, vision helps you achieve a few things. First thing vision does is this. Vision helps you to see. So, well, Glenn, it's not rocket science. You're absolutely right. It's not rocket science. Vision helps you to see. One of the things that I love to do is I love to do uh, track days on motorbikes. And I do track days in, in Germany and around the UK and around Europe. And I love it. And I remember years ago when I was taking my motorbike license, they said this. They said, if you are riding your motorbike and you see an object, a brick, a rock, a, a, a builder's ladders or something on the freeway, whatever you do, don't look at the obstacle. They taught us this, where you look is where you will go. Where there is no vision, people perish. We have to have the ability to be able to see. My question for you is this, is in the dark moments of your life, when you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that's the time where you need to have clarity of vision, to have clarity of sight, to remember what God said to you at that time when he gave you a vision for your life. In Christian terms, we hate the valley called the shadow of darkness, the shadow of death. We hate valleys. We all want to be on a mountaintop. You know what I've discovered? Fruit only ever really grows in a valley. And you only ever really get to appreciate the mountaintop after God has allowed you to walk through the valley. But usually it's in the valley that we feel like giving up. But when you have vision, when you know where you've come from, and more importantly, you know where you're going, you won't be like Terah, the father of Abram. Whom it says at the end of Genesis chapter 11 into 12, it says, Terah, the father of Abram, set off from Haran to go to the promised land. But when he came to Haran, he settled there. He set off from one place to go to another place, but he settled halfway. He settled halfway. I want you to know, church, that God doesn't want you to settle halfway. 
He doesn't want you to settle with where you are right now. It's great having 600 children coming this week, but that's not enough. God wants more. God's got more for your family and more for your church because God doesn't want us to be a halfway house. He wants us to be a people who have sight. Do you hear me this morning? Vision helps you to see. My question is this, what do you see? I'm not talking about the problem. I'm talking about what do you see on the other side of the problem? Because your God is much bigger than the problem that you see. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no ability to see. Our church is nine years old. But a few years ago, we planted a church in the south of Poland. Poland is a beautiful medieval medieval nation. It's beautiful. We planted a church in a city called Krakow. Krakow is where Schindler's List, remember that movie, it was, it was in that whole area. And the church that we launched was within two square blocks of Schindler's factory. Uh, we flew teams out every Friday night, every Saturday night from Manchester. They would take an hour's flight from Manchester, or an hour and a half, to Poland, do church Sunday morning, fly home Sunday afternoon back to Manchester, and on Sunday night in Manchester, tell us how morning went in Poland. Europe's pretty small. I must have been to Poland, I reckon, at least 100 times. At least 100 times. Within an hour of where we plant a church, there are two World War II prisoner of war camps, Auschwitz and Birkenau. We went there on many occasions. Millions of people were killed there. One of the survivors from Auschwitz, his name, his name was Viktor Frankl, a Viennese psychiatrist. Many years after World War II, having survived the horrors of the prisoner of war camps, he's in Vienna, he's speaking to a thousand university students, and these are the words he said. He said, I survived the prisoner of war camps. Others gave up hope, but I dreamed. I dreamed that one day I would stand here and give this speech to you. He said, I have never been here before, but in my dreams, I have seen this moment a thousand times. You see, vision kept him alive. And I want you to know, my friend, right now, that vision will keep your marriage alive. Vision will keep your business alive. Vision is the thing that we need in order to get through everything we're going through because where there is no vision, people give up. But where there is vision, there's life. I went to Haiti some years ago. You'll remember the big earthquake that took place there. A year to the day before that, we were in Port-au-Prince, a year to the day. We flew from the mainland, we flew to an island called Laganav, I think it is, a small island with about 100,000 people. We drove around the island and they took us to a really small hospital that was there. I, I guess the hospital was really from this pillar to that wall. That was the size of it. That was the only hospital on the island for around 110,000 people. We walked through the doors into the hospital to get a tour. The first thing I saw in the foyer of the hospital was a young 12-year-old boy to my left who was dying of HIV AIDS. And to my right, there was a lady who was giving birth to a baby. The baby was breech. There was no doctors or nurses or, or physicians attending. There was one doctor on site, one nurse on site. We walked into the hospital area, just a big open plan space, and 
the smell and the things that we saw just broke our heart. I said to the doctor, do you have any oil? Though if you read this, the Bible says that if you pray in faith and anoint with oil, God has the ability to make the sick well. He said, listen, we got no supplies. We have no medication whatsoever. So I said to our bodyguard, I said to him, could you race out to the Jeep? Could you bleed some oil from the engine? Let's not get technical on this. It just says oil. Let's take that oil. So we put it in a small cup and we went around the hospital and we started to anoint people with oil and prayed that God would heal them. But I've got to be honest, guys, at the end of an hour and a half, I walked out of that hospital and I felt deflated. I felt like I had just kind of nothing in me. And I said to my friend from Scotland, his name is Justin, I said, Justin, what hope is there for these people? He said, Glenn, come with me. And next to this small hospital was a big piece of land. And in the dirt on the floor with his foot, he began to mark out the territory, the dimensions of the new hospital that he wanted to build. He said, this is where the maternity ward is going to be. This is where the operating theatre is going to be. This is where the pharmacy is going to be. And he said, way over here, this is where we're going to dig the well. And way on the other side over here, this is where we're going to put the, the sewerage block. And he began to, over 15 minutes, map it out on the floor. And then he said these words, can you see it? And I said, I can see it. And over the next four years, the next four years, Somewhere in excess of 10 million US dollars was raised. The architect behind one of the main football clubs, soccer clubs in Manchester got involved. And four and a half years later, I'm speaking at a conference in Melbourne, Australia. I'm about to walk up on stage. The pastor is introducing me. And as he's introducing me, my phone vibrates in my pocket. I pulled, pulled it out and there was a picture from my friend Justin. He said this, Hey, Glenn, good news. We've just opened the hospital in Haiti. He said, within moments of opening, a pregnant lady was rushed in who was in labor. And he said, and here is the picture of the baby who was just born in our new maternity ward. I am crying. I'm sitting down here crying. They said, here comes Glenn. I get up on stage. I am crying. They think it's the Holy Spirit. It ain't the Holy Spirit. It's got everything to do with the fact that I had a friend who could see. Vision will help you to see. Now, I don't know what you see, but I read my Bible. And God comes to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, it says, Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah says, I can only see a bud or a shoot of an almond tree. And God says, absolutely. I am watching over my word to perform it in your life. My friend, you may not see an oak tree. You may only see an acorn. But if that's all you can see, I want you to know that God can take the seed of what you see and cause something to grow in your life that'll bear great fruit all the days of your life. What do you see? See, vision will help you to see. The second thing I want you to know about vision right now is this, is that vision helps you to see today through future glasses. It helps you to see today through future glasses. Two weeks ago, I went to see Wonder Woman. That's the kind of man I am. I mean, who knew it was going to be such a good movie, right? Went to see it, IMAX. 3D. 
And in 3D, it's amazing. The lenses help the whole thing to take on a whole new dimension. My son, he's going to be here in the next service. When he was younger, he was so cool. We used to go and watch 3D kind of movies, you know, like cars in 3D. And when it got really scary, what he would do is he'd take off the glasses so he couldn't see it properly. I said, are you not still scared? He goes, Dad, not with my glasses off. You see, vision helps you to see today through future glasses. You say, Glenn, what on earth are you talking about? Here's what the Bible says. Where there is no revelation, where there is no vision, the people perish. The people cast off restraint. In other words, where there's no vision, there's no restraint. But when you have vision, your life is full of restraint. When you have vision, you realize that there are some things that you could do today, but you won't do today because you know it's going to affect a future moment in your life. You see, for me, for my life, there are many things in marriage, there are many things that I can do as a free man, but because I love my wife, there are many things that I don't do. There are certain places that I don't access online. There are certain conversations that we don't get involved in. Why is that? It's because I have vision for my marriage and so I'm wearing future glasses. Let me illustrate it another way. Usain Bolt, the fastest runner in the world. He really wants to eat pizza for breakfast. But do you know why he doesn't eat pizza for breakfast? It's because he's wearing future glasses. He's got his eye on the next world championships. And so he could eat the pizza, but chooses not to eat pizza because the future glasses is restraining him in the here and the now. You see, what the devil wants to do is this. The devil wants to tell you, Christian man, Christian woman, wants to say, hey, God is a killjoy. Look at all the things you can't do. Look at all the things you miss out on as a Christian. And the devil whispers to us and tries to focus our attention on what we can't do. But when you realize that our focus is not on what we can't do, it's on what we can do. We're wearing future glasses. We're wearing future glasses. My son loves motorbikes. It's because his dad loves motorbikes. He's 13. When he was four, I rode my motorbike home. I'd just been on a track day. I pulled up on the driveway. I've got the leathers on. I'm really hot. I take my helmet off. And my son ran out of the house in his one-piece leather suit and his helmet. My son was cool on the back of a motorbike because with the intercom system, he, he hangs on. A, I've got these things called love handles. I'm not talking about fat. It's a belt with handles on the side. And he holds on like that. And, and in the intercom, he goes, Dad, go faster. I had to get the intercom because he's so light, I didn't know whether he was still behind me on the bike or not. He's like, go faster, go faster, go faster. I know when my daughter's on the bike, because she sings, la, she sings at the top of her voice. But when I was, he was four, I came home. He runs outside, he's got his helmet on. He's got his one piece leather race kit on. He says, dad, can I sit on your bike? I said, absolutely. I picked him up, I put him on the bike. He could only just, only just 
reach the handle. He can only just, his feet, he couldn't reach the pegs at all. He's just only, only just. And then he looks at me, his visor's up. He says, Dad, can I ride the bike? <laughs> now, is there anything wrong with his vision? No. But my question is this. What would happen if I allowed my four-year-old son to ride my motorbike that does naught to 100 miles an hour in 2.85 seconds? What would happen? Any thoughts? <laughs> well, before the government come and take my children off me, my wife, who's Latin American, will kill me. But because she's a woman of God, she'll raise me from the dead again <laughs> just so she can kill me again. Because you don't give four-year-old keys to a bike as powerful as that. You see, what vision does is vision comes with future glasses. You know what? I'm not going to take that substance. No, I'm not going to have sex with that person. No, I'm not going to watch that movie. No, I'm not going to do those things. Oh, you're boring. No, I'm not boring, man. I've got vision. And I realize that everything I do today can affect my tomorrow. Where there is no vision, there is no restraint. I would suggest that in a church called Higher Vision, where you have a vision, the more vision there is, the more restraint there is. Because the more vision requires more restraint. Vision helps you to see. Vision causes you to see today through future glasses. And the last thing is Camden. Come on up here and play, man, because I like your jeans. <laughs> He's going that way. Come this way, Camden. I'm breaking all the rules, aren't I? Let's give Camden a round of applause, shall we? Vision helps you to see. Vision helps you to see today through future glasses. And now we're waiting for the perfect note. Perfect. And lastly, vision starts with what you've got. Vision starts with what you've got. Moses, I'm going to use you. And you're going to take three million people. You're going to go and see your half-brother, who's Pharaoh. And you're going to lead three million people from slavery to the promised land. Well, who am I? I can't even sp sp speak. How can I do it? God says, what's in your hand? You see, vision, my friend, always starts with what you've got. Over the years of being a pastor, people have come up to me and said, Glenn, I got nothing. I, I got nothing. I've got no relationships that I love. I've, I've got nothing. I've got no qualifications from school. I've got nothing. I wonder if you heard this story. The famous scientists went up to God and said, God, anything you can do, we can do better. We can do anything better than you. God said, no, you can't. The clever scientist said, yes, we can. No, you can't. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. So God said to the clever scientists, okay, clever scientists, how about a duel? And they said, no problem, God, because anything you can do, we can do better. God said, here's the duel. You have to make a man. 
And they said, no problem, God. We can clone a sheep called Dolly. We can definitely make a man. And God said, there are two conditions to this duel. Condition number one, you have to use what I used in the beginning when I used dust to make man. And the clever scientist said, no problem, God, because anything you can do, we can do better. The scientist then bent down to pick up some dust and God then said this, condition number two is this, you have to get your own dust. You see, when God created the heavens and the earth, He created what we call in Latin, ex nihilio, out of nothing. There was nothing and He made everything. But the cleverest person in the world today needs something and something and a catalyst to turn it into something else. But God needs a whole heap of nothing. So if you just stand before God and say, God, I don't know what I've got, but everything I am is yours. The same God who took dust to make humankind can take your life, can take potentially your broken dreams. He can take your hurt, your pain, your faith, your hope, and He can wrap it up and create something that makes everybody go, how on earth did you do that? And you in all your wisdom and humility are able to step back and say, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvellous in our eyes. I was speaking to a room of teenagers. We had about 1,200 teenagers in the room. This is about, how long ago? 10 years ago now, 10 years ago. Our church is called Audacious Church. Before we launched the church, we ran a conference called Audacious Conference. We were running this conference on the south coast of England, about four and a half hours drive away from Manchester. And I was speaking to this room, 12, 1300 teenagers, speaking to them how our heroes of the Bible, many of them in the Old Testament, our heroes were, were politicians. And I began to inspire faith in a generation of young men and young women, saying, one day you could be the Prime Minister of our nation. At the end of the service, I had an altar call and people came to the front. Three people out of a room of 1,300 people, three people came to the front. Felt a call of God to go into politics. One of the girls, I'm going to call her Karis. <coughs> Karis was there. I said to her after the service, I said, Karis, what happened? She said, Pastor Glenn, while you were speaking, she said, I literally saw myself walking through the doors of 10 Downing Street where our Prime Minister lives in London. She said, I saw myself as Prime Minister of Great Britain. She said, what should I do? I said, listen, there are four principal political parties. Stay away from the other ones. Talked a little bit about the four principles of each of them, the four policies of each of them. But I said to her, go home, go online, go on Google. Google the, the manifestos of the political parties and see what you can find. Karis, by the way, is from a single parent family. From a high school that was not a very good high school. Her grades were average. She went home, she went on, she typed in this in, in, the, in the browser, she typed in youth in politics and discovered that the United Nations were looking for a new junior United Nations ambassador. So she applied. A thousand teenagers from around the world applied for the post of junior United Nations ambassador. They wrote back to her, they said, if you get in the top 500, we'll let you know. 
She got into the top 500. If you're in the top 100, we'll let you know. She got in the top 100. If you're in the top 50, we'll let you know. She got in the top 50. If you get in the top 20, we're going to fly you to the United Nations. So a few weeks later, they put her on a plane and flew her to the United Nations. She's in the top 20. She's 13. A few weeks earlier, she sat in conference where God said to her, gave her a vision. The picture was her with a key going through the door of 10 Downing Street. In front of the leadership of the UN, they said this to this little girl, 13. They said, why do you want to become the junior United Nations ambassador? She said, well, I was sitting in audacious and God spoke to me and said, one day I'm going to be the prime minister of Great Britain. So I thought I'd start by becoming the junior United Nations ambassador. They said this to her. They said, we don't believe in God. This 13-year-old girl from the wrong side of the tracks, the wrong school, she replied with this, it makes no difference. He believes in me. They said this, because of your religious persuasion, we don't think you're going to get any further. She got to the top 10, the top five, the top three. And they said, Karis, why do you want to be this? God spoke to me. We don't believe in God. Even though the United Nations motto is taken straight out of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, we don't believe in God. She said, He believes in me. Everybody was shocked, stunned when she, Karis, not her real name, was voted as the junior United Nations ambassador. Stunned everybody. How's this? A week later, they flew her from London Heathrow to Washington, D.C. Did you know in Washington, D.C., there is a house that's been painted white? And she stayed in the guest wing of the President of the United States of America's house. Then the leaders of the G8 came. They travelled to Camp David, wherever it was. The leaders, Prime Ministers, Presidents, and a 13-year-old girl from a broken home, the wrong school. They said things like this in conversation. What should we do about the terrorist issue? They said, what do you think, Karis? She said, well, Jesus says we should turn the other cheek, so maybe we should just learn somehow to to forgive. Your president said, "I, I like it a lot. They started to talk about the environment. What do you think, Karis? She said, well, Mr. President, at home where I live, I've got a bicycle. If I was to lend you my bicycle and you ruined it, I'd be pretty upset with you, Mr. President. And she said this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So maybe we should just better take care of that which doesn't belong to us. That was 10 years ago. Now she's 23, nearly 24. She's been to Oxford, Cambridge, studied economics and politics. Now she's full-time working for the United Nations living in Paris at the age of 23, nearly 24. Because when she was 13, she sat in a seat and God helped her to see. I don't know what you see, but I do know this. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But when you have vision, Jesus says this, I have come that you might have life and life to the full.